0: You're very Floridian, Galen. That's like the most offensive thing you've ever said. No, I'm kidding.
1: <laughs> Jake, May, hey, I love you, Florida.
2: But what does this mean, Nate, that he's got Florida vibes?
1: He's kind of YOLO. <laughs> he's not judgy like people in the Northeast are.
3: Are Florida people really not judgy?
1: No, they're not judgy. They should be maybe more judgy, but like they're not. <laughs>
0: Hello, and welcome to this emergency edition of the FiveThirtyEight Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer plans to retire from the court at the end of the current term. He served on the court for 27 years, and polling nerds might appreciate this. Despite being one of the longest-serving justices on the court, he is the least well-known. According to recent YouGov polling, less than half of Americans were able to express an opinion about him. So that's Breyer, but of course, this also sets us up for a conversation about his replacement. President Biden now has the opportunity to fill a vacancy on the court, which he said during a Democratic primary debate in 2020 would be a black woman. Let's roll that quote. The fact is what we should be doing, we talked about the Supreme Court. I'm looking forward to making sure there's a black woman on the Supreme Court to make sure we in fact get every representation. Not a joke. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki reconfirmed his intention to do just that today. And of course, this will all take place during a midterm election year. So here with me to discuss is senior writer and legal reporter Amelia Thompson DeVoe. These are the days you live for, right, Amelia? How's it going?
3: I know the Supreme Court keeping me in business forever. <laughs> um, I'm good. Thank you. <laughs> Great to be here.
0: Also here with us is Editor-in-Chief Nate Silver. Hey, Nate. Hey, everybody. Happy emergency podcast day. It's been a minute, right? Yeah. Is this really an emergency? Let's be honest. I mean, yeah, it's an emergency for the court. They're going to have only eight justices. It's the most predictable emergency of all time. (laughs) I know, I know, I know. Play along with me, Nate. Play along with me. Okay. All right. Also with us is politics editor Sarah Frostensen. On a scale from one to emergency, how would you rate this podcast? Oh, gosh. Uh...
2: Sort of an emergency. Nate's right. Sort it's a predictable one, right? Amelia knows
1: yeah. that. I remember where I was when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. I remember even where I was yes, when I do too. <laughs> uh, Anthony Kennedy said he'd retire. I'm not sure I remember where I was a couple of hours ago where when I heard about this news.
2: Poor Breyer. He can't go. I know.
3: I know. Also, Galen, I don't know what you saw in that poll about how many people knew who Breyer was, but I saw a Marquette poll that put it at 21% of Americans said they had some kind of opinion about him, so it's a little bit of a bleak bleak place for him to be going out on.
0: You know, in today's environment, it's probably best to be not thought of at all than, you know, vehemently loved and hated all at the same time. I have no idea. I guess people can take their own pick. Nate, I also have to say, I will never, ever forget where I was when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, because I was on a date, on a first date. (laughs) And my slack started blowing up and like I hadn't looked at my phone for an hour because I was trying to be like a good person to be on a date with. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, f- I got to go home. And that was that. No second date.
3: This is what you <laughs> get, Galen, for going on a date on Rosh Hashanah. Because <laughs> that's, that's what it was.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, bad Jew. Okay. All right. <laughs> we have lots to talk about here. But the first question that I wanted to ask was, so we've been doing this podcast for six years. This is now going to be the fourth Supreme Court justice replacement that we cover in those six years. There are only nine justices. Amelia, is this out of whack for what we would expect in terms of Supreme Court justice turnover?
3: I think it's a little faster than usual. I mean, there have definitely been periods where there have been a lot of turnover. I mean, Richard Nixon got to nominate Four Supreme Court justices, and he, you know, he wasn't even president for eight years. Um, so there have been other periods where there's been a lot of churn. And like back in the day, Supreme Court justices were leaving all the time because the job kind of sucked, and they would often get a better job and go do something else.
0: <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah. It's it's only recently that being a Supreme Court justice was like a good job that paid well that people wanted to do. Fun fact. But it is a fair amount of turnover. As we were saying earlier, this is a less consequential replacement in a lot of ways. It's not going to change the ideological balance of the court. Democrats should be able to replace Breyer pretty straightforwardly, I think. But, you know, it's still going to change the court in important ways that we're obviously going to talk about.
0: So let's talk about that. But first, Sarah and Nate, tell me why you don't really think this is an emergency.
1: It's not an emergency because it's not a surprise because unless Stephen Breyer was an idiot, then he kind of had to retire. The obvious reason being that Democrats could very easily lose control of the Senate in November. What Mitch McConnell would or wouldn't agree to is probably pretty limited. And so with only three reliably liberal justices, the progressive movement really benefits from having someone who was younger than Breyer on the court.
2: Right. Cosign what Nate is outlining there. But I think in addition, he's announcing it, what, in January? Kennedy waited until June. So it's just like it follows the pattern of it being expected. And I think, too, in terms of who Biden will nominate to fill Breyer's role, that, too, is a little bit we expect he will nominate, you know, a black woman to that position based on his campaign promise. So a lot of this has just been kind of like writing on the wall that's been there for a while.
3: It's been a little bit more up in the air, though, because some a lot of people thought Breyer was going to retire last year. I mean, the Democrats had the Senate majority, but something could happen to make them lose the majority. And so it was even a little bit risky for him to wait this long. You know, I think it's pretty clear why he did. Last term was not a huge term. This term... Pretty much every major issue in American politics is at the Supreme Court right now, with the exception of affirmative action, which is going to be at the Supreme Court next year.
0: So Guns, abortion, COVID, Yeah, all of it. Yeah,
3: exactly. It's just like, you name it, they're doing it. So I think Breyer wanted to be there for that. But the fact that he hadn't announced was, I think, making some folks on the left a little bit nervous about, like, when is he going to do this? Will there be enough time to replace him? Because he is 82, and... They do want someone younger to take his place while that can happen.
0: Right. Activists on the left were pushing for Breyer to retire even last year, as you mentioned. At the time, he kind of brushed aside those suggestions saying that Supreme Court justices are not meant to be, you know, partisan hacks who just retire when it's convenient. That's not a quote from Breyer himself, but that's me paraphrasing the sentiment that he conveyed. I mean, was that all just a show?
3: Yeah, that's silly. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, Breyer's <laughs> been on this like Breyer's been on this big campaign over the past year or so. He wrote a book where he said the Supreme Court is non-ideological. It's really important to our institutional credibility for people to see us above politics. We're not politicians in robes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Which, like, that may well be true. That. But- It is important to their institutional credibility to not be seen as
1: ideological. Yeah, it is
3: important to their institutional credibility. Like, whether they are perceived that way, I think right now is a different question. Um, And whether Stephen Breyer is going to change the minds of any Americans on that front by writing a book, again, another question. We can have that debate a different day. But Supreme Court justices tend to retire while they can be replaced by someone who's ideologically simpatico. It's just, you know, we saw this happen under Obama. He got a couple of retirements early on. Kennedy chose to retire under Trump. You know, there have been... Sometimes, like, justices can't always control when they leave the court, obviously, and sometimes they guess wrong um, about what the political wins are going to be and, and who will be able to replace them. But for the most part, it's understandable. They want their legacy to continue, and that means they want to be replaced by someone who has similar views.
2: I think the hangover from Ginsburg and that happening and Republicans getting to make the appointment there probably still looms large in Democrats' minds, Breyers' mind, et etc.,
0: so I want to talk about the replacement process, but before we get to that, we mentioned that Stephen Breyer is not particularly well known, but we at 538 track a whole bunch of data about where the Supreme Court justices fall on the ideological spectrum, even within the two camps of liberal and conservative, there's some variation. So who is Breyer and how might his absence change the court?
3: Breyer's been on the court for a long time. Um, he was a Clinton nominee. Um, he came onto the court in 1994. So he's he's been there for a while. He's established a long track record. And that track record is really that he is a center-left justice. We look at Martin Quinn scores, which are problematic in some ways, but also helpful in others. We we don't really have better data to measure Supreme Court ideology. And you can see when you look at that, that he's just been sort of on the, the center part of the liberal coalition pretty consistently since he came onto the court. And he's kind of known as a pragmatist who likes to compromise when he can. And that meant that in some cases, you know, he came out with rulings that liberals were happy with. In other cases, he came out with rulings that liberals were not happy with. There was a sort of famous set of cases in 2005 that were both about 10 commandments displays, and he was the pivotal vote. And he went with the conservatives in one case and with the liberals in another case. And that's like, of in a nutshell. I'm looking at an analysis by Lee Epstein and Andrew Martin, who are political scientists who study the Supreme Court, and they're looking just at the share of liberal votes that are cast by justices that Breyer served with. And he has the lowest share of liberal votes of all the Democratic appointees. Um, so which is not to say that he's not liberal. He is quite liberal, but he's definitely not out there railing against what the conservatives are doing. He really tried to find compromise opinions. And I think, you know, seemed to be getting kind of frustrated as the court got more conservative that that was harder and harder to do.
0: Is it safe to say then that whoever replaces Breyer is going to be more liberal?
2: As we've seen with the appointees Trump made, yes, the court is moving in a more ideological direction. And given what we've already seen in terms of Biden's appointees in the federal judiciary, it's likely that who he appoints to the court now will also be you know, less likely to compromise. We see, for instance, of the two remaining liberal justices on the court, Sotomayor and Kagan, You know, Kagan's a little bit more moderate. Her and Breyer actually have very similar scores within the Martin Quinn data, but Sotomayor is issuing dissents you know right and left and presumably whoever Biden appoints to this role could fall into that camp though again they could fall more into the Kagan camp, but I think as Amelia argues in her piece, like that brand of judiciary style that we saw with Breyer is kind of falling out of vogue. It- I think there's also just like the math of the Supreme Court right now,
3: and an approach like Breyer and Kagan's was more persuasive at a time when John Roberts, the chief justice, was the deciding vote, and there were four liberals because they just needed to peel off Roberts, and Roberts is known for, sort of you know, he's very conservative, but he has concerns about wanting to preserve the court's institutional reputation, not appearing too ideological, kind of similar to Breyer in that way. So he was persuadable on that front. And like the idea of compromise was appealing to him in some cases. Now the liberals have to pick off two conservatives, you know, which is not to say that it can't happen, but it's much harder to do, especially because, you know, we're still sort of figuring out what what Trump's nominees are going to do on the court. But in general, they just seem much less concerned with how the court appears and much more focused on, you know, doing what they think is the right thing, which on some high profile issues may turn out to be pretty unpopular. So obviously, you know, justices are all people and they have different philosophies and how they'll rule on different issues varies person to person. But I think it'll be interesting to see even if whoever replaces Breyer is not like super, super liberal. I just don't know how much mileage there is to be gotten for a liberal justice out of pursuing that kind of compromise path right now?
1: I mean, to me, this question is a little bit weird because number one, you're never going to have any of the three liberals when the new justice is picked be the swing vote on very much anything. So in the short run, I'm not sure it matters that much if you're kind of center left or more left left. In the short run, there are political consequences though. And if Biden chooses someone who has a track record of like being very liberal, very outspoken about it, that's the kind of person that Joe Manchin or Kirsten Sinema might begin to oppose. So I think we actually have some constraints here with just a 50-50 Senate.
0: Yeah, that's an important point. And we actually have some indication of who is well, on the shortlist. Biden shortened it quite a bit through his campaign promise. I mean, what do we know about who's on that short list?
3: Yeah. So Supreme Court justices tend to get onto the court in a particular way, which is to say they mostly serve as judges. Elena Kagan is an exception to that. But the past few picks, um, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Barrett have all come from the courts of appeals. So did Sotomayor, et cetera. So this, this is a pretty common path coming through the federal judiciary. And there are just not that many Black women in the federal judiciary. Biden has been making a big push to appoint point more people of color more women to the judiciary so some of the people who are on the list are actually people that he elevated to a higher position or is, is in the process of nominating them to a higher position in the courts. But if he wants an appeals court judge who is a black woman, he really doesn't have a ton of options. And I think one of the, the leading contenders in that space is Contagi Brown Jackson, who was a district court judge in D.C. and then was appointed to be a judge on the D.C. circuit, which is the most powerful appeals court in the country. Country. Um, so I would say she is a big leading contender. Another one is um, Leandra Kruger, who's a California Supreme Court justice. Obviously, that's a state court. It's not a federal court. would Be a little bit more unusual, but still a judge. And then there are some other names in the mix. A couple of district court judges, Michelle Childs, who is currently a district court judge but has been nominated to the D.C. Circuit, and Leslie Abrams Gardner, who is a district court judge. You might hear the name Abrams and think, is she related to Stacey Abrams, who's running for governor in Georgia? Yes, she is. She is her sister. So those are all possibilities. If I had to guess, I would say, I think it's probably going to be Jackson just because she was like clearly put on this path at the beginning of the Biden presidency. And she's got the background. You know, she has impeccable credentials. She went to the right schools. She also served as a public defender, which is something that we're seeing more in the profile of Biden's nominees to the courts. You know, it could be someone else, but those are some of the names that. That I've seen floating.
2: And speaking about like how Jackson was appointed, um, all 50 Democrats backed her for the D.C. Circuit, as did three Republicans. So if, you know, Biden went forward with that nomination, maybe he doesn't get all three Republicans this time around. But presumably, you know, Manchin and Cinema voted for her once. Would they really balk um, for this nomination?
1: She is a leading contender on predict it. The Scottish teens, <laughs> they're already the at Scottish teens.
2: The Scottish teens, now in
0: this case, <laughs>
1: give us the rundown, Nate. So Jackson at 58%, Childs at 17%, Kruger at 16%, Kamala Harris at 4%. That's the internet, <sighs> it's not crazy not idea happen. of the day. Well, there's a 4% chance, which you yeah. take over <laughs> under 4%. Yeah,
3: I know. Oh, let's start a betting pool on this one. I don't I got burned on Amy Coney Barrett because it was. I thought it you know, it was like really clear she was the leading contender for to take Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat. And then I started getting in my head, and I was like, what if Trump wants to surprise us? ex blah 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 and then it was Barrett. I don't think he even he didn't even talk to anyone else.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's right. yeah, okay. But if you are Harris, Vice President Kamala Harris, would you rather continue being vice president or become a Supreme Court justice? Because to me, Supreme Court justice is a way better job than Vice President of the United States.
3: Well, it's like, do you think you're going to be Vice President forever?
0: Or no. Okay, so given her position, like Vice President now, could potentially you would have to run, would have to win the nomination, win the presidency. So, like, where she is right now with her potential, or on the Supreme Court, given a, you know a lifetime appointment.
3: I mean, I would rather be on the Supreme Court, but I also would never run for office. (laughs) So like, I don't know. I don't think it's like especially fun to be a liberal on the Supreme Court right now. I mean, you're losing on everything you care about. So it's not like you can come in there and like you're making law that you're excited about for the most part.
1: You get to write hot takes all day. You can give speeches for hundreds of thousand dollars a pot. True, I mean, you can on. do that.
0: Nate Silver for Supreme Court justice. <laughs> um, okay,
2: you'll get the next one, Nate. Yeah. <laughs> if only we could ask uh, William Howard Taft, which was better, president or the Supreme Court?
3: Oh, I think he much preferred being Supreme Court justice.
0: I think. He okay.
2: Said that. Okay. Well, I guess Harris, if you're listening, maybe you know, maybe consider the the court.
0: OK, so back to reality, the three Republicans who confirmed Jackson were Lindsey Graham, Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins, then all 50 Democrats in the Senate. So is it fair to assume that if that were the you know nominee this time, it would be a relatively smooth process?
2: I mean, never say never, but yes, it should be. (laughs) Thanks to the filibuster carve-out for both federal judicial appointees and the Supreme Court, like, you just need a simple majority. Democrats have the numbers. If they were to go with Jackson, they should have their, you know, future Supreme Court justice.
3: And I will say... The Democrats are fighting about a lot of things right now, but they are not fighting about judges. We have been looking into the data and um, talking to some scholars who follow this, and Democrats have basically just been entirely in lockstep on judicial nominees, even when they've been sort of controversial. I mean, there there have been some where Republicans have, have kicked up more of a fuss and Democrats are just, like, holding together. So, again... It is foolish to say that anything will definitely happen in this crazy world of ours, but um, I sort of feel like if they, if they can't pull this off, then like they should go home because they've they've like got the numbers to do this, and it should be pretty straightforward.
1: If you're a Republican and there's not much upside, really, because you're not going to prevent her from being chosen, this is the vote that you use to prove that you are nonpartisan or bipartisan when you have some other pretext for opposing somebody else later, right? Like if, for example, one of the conservative justices were to, I don't think they voluntarily retire, but if they were to unexpectedly die and Biden made a second appointment, that's when you would find your convenient reasons to oppose somebody. So it wouldn't even shock me if you got more than 53 votes for confirmation because like, there's not really much political upside apart from kind of signaling to your base that we can't let any liberal in the Supreme court, but there's like, no, I don't think we've
3: talked about this though. Like if Biden appoints a black woman to the Supreme court, It'll be historic. I mean, there have only been five women on the Supreme Court, only one of them Sotomayor is a woman of color. There have only been two black men. So it's not just voting against a Democratic nominee, it's voting against the first black woman to serve on the Supreme Court, which like I'm sure you know, a significant number of Republicans in the Senate will do. But if you're gonna take a stand and as Nate was saying, like the Democrats are gonna get it through anyway, maybe you don't do it on this one if you're a more moderate Republican.
2: It's possible because just the court appointments have become so contentious and partisan within Congress. You know, Breyer was really one of like the last nominations that had a wide bipartisan support in terms of getting to the Supreme Court. But again, I think as Amelia is flagging, like this nomination provided Biden nominates a Black woman would be historic. And so right, where do Republicans, particularly in the Senate, land on that? You know, they did vote unanimously in favor of like Juneteenth as a holiday. Are they really going to stand in the way of um, the first Black woman on the Supreme Court?
0: Okay, well, sure. I mean, because there's a lot more at stake here, right, which is the Supreme Court is dealing with a lot of high profile issues, a lot of high profile issues that Republican voters care about. And so if they're just all going to confirm a Democratic appointed Supreme Court nominee to the court, then they're like endorsing those positions as well, which seems to me like it would not be electorally advantageous for plenty of Republicans in the Senate. And maybe this is where we can start talking about electoral politics and the midterms. whether or not you support a Supreme Court justice or how this argument plays out, how does that affect electoral politics and the midterms? you know we've 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 covered a midterm confirmation. We've covered a general election, a presidential election confirmation, all kinds of fraught processes over the past six years. How does this shape electoral politics
1: with so much else happening, I don't think it will unless something is bungled or or she actually whoever she wants it being. If the nominee actually like has Harriet Meyers problems where the nomination has to be pulled for some reason, or Joe Manchin objects for some reason, and you don't get the votes, that gets very messy. If you have a bunch of Republicans say things that come across as racist, right, which is certainly a possibility with a black woman being nominated, then maybe that would rile up some Democratic votes. But I don't think people are going to be talking about this very much in November. They'll more be talking about decisions that the Supreme Court makes, like on abortion.
0: Up to the point, would you say, Nate, that your replacement level Republican senator could vote to confirm this Supreme Court justice and it wouldn't affect their standing with their voters?
1: I don't think the average Republican voter believes that just blanket you should oppose a Democratic president from being able to nominate a liberal Judge, I think he probably needs some other excuse for that, right? And I don't know that there are a lot of good excuses here. Although, of course, the vetting I mean, process—how things
0: went during Trump, right? Like, Democrats didn't vote for his nominees at all.
1: Well, maybe they should. I don't know. I'm just trying to like say there's no ideological shift in the court here. It would look bad to oppose the first black woman ever to be nominated to the court. Strategically, again, you have to kind of pick some issues to look like the reasonable person. I'm not saying she's gonna get like 70 votes, but you might get 56 or something, I don't know. Okay, we'll
0: be able to test this theory. Amelia, Sarah, do you agree? Just given the way things have trended in previous
2: nominations, I don't know, I'm skeptical that a lot of Republicans sign on for whoever the nominee is on this.
3: Yeah, I would say it's like, we're talking about whether like two or three Republicans come on board. And like, I don't want to underestimate the possibility that this could be a kind of nasty confirmation process. I mean, the fact that this is the first black woman, I think racist things could be said. I think she could be attacked in a way that someone who's not a black woman would not be attacked. You know, whether that matters electorally, like, Democrats, I think, are going to be trying to do this pretty fast the way that um, Republicans did with Amy Coney Barrett. So if Breyer retires at the end of June and then they start the process like this could be over by August and then people may have forgotten about it by November. You know, I think it's possible that this becomes more controversial and contentious just because, you know, black women are attacked in ways that a white man or, or even a white woman coming up for this high-profile position wouldn't be. So I wouldn't discount that. And um, I think the vast majority of Republicans will not vote for her, whoever she is.
2: Yeah. The other thing, though, in theory, the nomination process will happen at the close of this upcoming term. And I think, as Nate was saying, I think some of the anger around the Supreme Court might be centered more on the issues. But it'll be interesting to see, like, how much Does it then play either to maybe Democratic voters who are like, I'm not happy with how Democrats are doing or Biden is doing in office, but, you know, given the court's ruling on Roe, I feel motivated in X, Y, Z ways, or maybe it's Republicans who feel more energized in the sense of like, look, we have a conservative majority on the court. Democrats have now put, you know, a new justice on. I think it's too early to tell, but I'm interested in like, does this nomination, you know, motivate either party's voters on this. I could see it going both ways. Maybe Democrats decide they're going to try to pack the court while we're talking
3: about crazy things that won't happen. <laughs> um, but seriously, I think like depending on what the court does in June, we're probably going to be hearing more people at least saying they should pack the court. But yes, I'm I'm joking.
0: All right, well, along with whoever this nominee is getting 70 confirmation votes, that also will not happen. But these other questions, how this shapes electoral politics and what the process looks like going forward. As with all things on this podcast, we will track it and we will find out together, but let's leave it there for now. So thank you, Amelia, Sarah, and Nate. Thanks, Galen. Thank you, Galen. Thanks, Galen. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidegary-Curtis is on audio editing and Emily Vinesky is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538com You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple podcast store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening and we will see you soon.